featuring such classics as Lies Inc., The Man in the High Castle, Ubik. Who can forget the immortal, the man whose teeth were all exactly alike? And of course, do androids dream of electric sheep? Order now using this toll-free number. Not available in any store. Hey, dickheads! Like a pink laser beam of truth beaming straight from our personal cold packs to your brain hole. I am David Agronoff. One of your personal dickheads, Larry might actually be in Cold Pack because we've only seen him once in the last year. Uh, we have a special guest dickhead joining us today, and by special I mean very special, uh, author Stephen Graham Jones. Stephen, say hello to the folks. Hey, yo. Um, now, Stephen is the author of The Only Good Indians, which was my number one read of the year last year, Night of the Mannequins, Mongrels. Um, he also teaches literature at uh, University of Colorado Boulder, correct? Correct. And, and, um, but if you want more, we're not going to go in depth with Stephen's work and what he's done, because I did an interview with him last year, and we'll put a link in the show notes to that interview. But um, Stephen, could you at least give the folks an introduction of how you got into Philip K. Dick? I got into Philip K. Dick when I was 22. A friend I had met in a fiction workshop um, linked me initially to a Stanislaw Lem article on Dick. Not that one, not that one that, that you sent us, but um, a different one where he's talking about um, trash. And I don't know, it was really good. And that got me into it. And it, weirdly enough, the first um, PKD, book, PKD book I read was Ballas, which is weird to like start that late in the game, you know. But yeah. then I went back and you know ate everything else. Right. And Everything? Have you read them all? I don't know if I've read them all, actually. But you've um, had, I, I've read, read like some. Yeah, I've read a lot. Like, um, I've gone into the weeds a bit, like the World Jones Made and Counterclock World, all that little bitty book, you know? Um, yeah. I, 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 bet, I bet there's probably I bet there's probably eight I haven't read, I suspect, you know? <laughs> yeah. Well, that's still, that's a higher level than what we started with when we started the podcast. So most of us had only read three or four novels, whatever. Um, in case you're a new listener, and we do know people pop in for just individual books that they that they uh, like, and Ubik has a lot of fans. Um, I'm David Agronoff. I'm author of Goddamn Killing Machines and Punk Rock Ghost Story. Um, I also do another podcast called Postcards from a Dying World, and I have a blog where I have over a thousand book reviews, probably. 1200 book reviews at this point um, up there. And uh, anywho, that's me. Uh, Anthony, tell the folks who you are. Uh, yeah, Anthony Trevino. I am a weird fiction writer and occasional cranky film critic on a bunch of blogs I'm sure no one reads at this point. But uh, yeah, that's me. Uh, Langhorn. And I'm Langhorn J. Tweed. And that's Larry. Langhorn. Okay, thank you. Um, so yes, uh, our first segment is PKD News. Uh, two pieces of interesting news. One is that um, the PKD Award nominees for 2021 came out. So the nominees are Failed State by Christopher Brown, The Book of Colloy by M.R. Carey, which I'm reading next week, uh, Dance on Saturday by Elwyn Cotman, Bone Silence by Alistair Reynolds, Road Out of Winter by Alison Stein, 
and I'm going to butcher this guy's name, but The Doors of Eden by Adrian Tchaikovsky, I think, something like that. He's a Russian writer. He wrote that Children of Time book that was, I'm told, very good. Uh, so those are the nominees. I don't have anything to say about those nominees. You guys got any comments? Or Yeah, I didn't think so. All right. <laughs> And we, every year, uh, we, when they announce the judges, we put that information out there so people can nominate books. Uh, so the other piece of news is that the 30th anniversary 4K Blu-ray of Total Recall was released. With, really? Yes. With uh, two uh, multiple versions. There's the original DVD rip, there's the Blu-ray rip, and there's the 4K rip. Anyways, uh, any thoughts on Total Recall getting a, a pretty new version? I'll buy it. Yeah. I'll, I'll probably buy it. Yeah. I'll yeah. probably borrow it from you at some point. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, yeah, uh, I, I think it's great to see Total Recall get respect still. Um, we, you know, of course, we did an episode on Total Recall. We loved it. Um, and it's one of those rare cases where it's better than the source material. That was one of our first episodes. I think that was our fourth episode. Yeah. It's a while back. Going way back. But, um, but yeah, so I'm excited. Total Recall, 30th anniversary. Where has the time gone? But, uh, anywho, um, let's get into this book. Um, so, Ubik, what, Ubik, Ubik, Ubik. Yeah, we, we can talk about that for a second. Just right off the right off the top is a uh, uh, tell him about that quote, David. So um, there's a very famous interview that he did that PKD did with Pacifica Radio, where he did address the um, pronunciation of Ubik, and um, <laughs> and it is, I believe, technically Ubik. And yeah. um, Anthony, you want to read the quote? Ubik. The French call it Ubik, Dix Ubik. It's called Ubik, Mia Signore, in Italian. I guess that means Ubik, my dear sir, or something like that. Well, it does. I looked it up. Dick looked it up. I didn't look it up. Yeah. So, <laughs> yes, uh, he was totally fine with it being Ubik, Ubik, but I think he did call it Ubik. He joked around a lot about it. Um, it's and it is ubiquity it's not ubiquity so exactly <laughs> so right so the, for the purposes of the episode ubic yes and I, i'm sure our one our one infamous troll will show up to tell us we're wrong about it. <laughs> uh yeah oh, oh frank's already disliked this episode on youtube <laughs> all right so uh but this book was published in 1969 19 and 69. David, what was happening in 1969? Well, that's the thing. There was a lot of famous things that happened in 1969. I think it's pretty in everyone's consciousness that the moon landing happened in 1969. Yeah. So it's really weird to think about this novel coming out. Allegedly. Way. Yeah. <laughs> right. Oh, uh, no. <laughs> Great. Thanks for bringing all the flat earthers to the podcast. <laughs> To the YouTube comments. Um, so the moon landing obviously happened in 69. It was the last Beatles show happened in 1969. And the Stonewall riots happened in 1969. So just, wow. it was a big and important year. A lot of transitional things going on. 
Um, obviously, Vietnam was still um, a big deal at that time. But to me, the main things that, that just really anchored me to the time when I thought about this book was the moon landing and the Stonewall riots. Well, so if, if Nixon was elected in 68, he started his presidency then in 69 as well. Yep. Yep. First year Nixon. Um, and, and that was... was- that's also, didn't Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid come out in 69? And also The Wild Bunch, Sam Peckinpah? I think those both came out in 69. If not, they were definitely around that time. That was when yeah. the beginning of that big uh, big push in independent films. Yeah. Yeah, both Butch Cassidy and Wild Bunch both came out in 1969. Mm-hmm. All right. Um, so And also, Night of the Living Dead was playing at all the midnight movies until like 72. or They nice. say it played forever, yeah. Yeah, that's, God, that would have been awesome. Uh, (laughs) A great era for movies, that's for sure. uh, Now, for the writing and publication history of Ubik, we have a lot of information. And uh, for long-time listeners, you will not be surprised that PKD had a really bad title for this book before he changed it. Um, Or Doubleday changed it, I'm not sure. Um, But so... uh, Larry, you can get ready to add this to your spreadsheet of bad PKD titles. Oh, I got it. Yep. Yeah. Um, are you ready, guys? The original title submitted was Death of the Anti-Watcher. What? Death oh. of the Anti-Watcher. Death of the Anti-Watcher. I just oh, that... want you guys to know, though, that I looked it up because I have the notes up and before David said it, and he wrote it as D... Uh, D of the A to the W. <laughs> and that sounds even even worse. <laughs> the reason I wrote that is I didn't want to give away the title before I told you guys. When you looked I up- still think Earth's diurnal core rotation was the worst one. <laughs> Which was for Dr. Blood Money, of course. Um, yeah. Uh, I don't know. Um, I'm still, there's so many bad ones, but yeah, Earth's Diurnal Course might be, and the worst part about that title is he tried to use it twice. Yeah, right? (laughs) Um, Which is, you know. But this one's pretty bad. This one's pretty bad. Yeah. I'm trying to make it make sense in the context of the book, but. Yeah. So, yeah. What what did he publish just before this and just after? Do y'all know offhand? I don't know. Oh, yeah. David knows all that stuff. Yeah. Okay. We will be getting to all that. Um, uh, (laughs) uh, But first, we should mention that this, of course, Ubik, like many of um, PKD's novels, are built on the spine of a previously existing short story, the first chapter of which is almost word for word out of a short story called What the Dead Men Say that was written in 1963. Bill has said in a couple interviews that when he sat down to write Ubik, unlike any other uh, some of the other ones, he really didn't know what he was going to write. He he just he didn't have an idea. He just took some of the setup of what the dead man say and kind of built from there. And of course, we can all see that it started as one novel and became another one because he obviously halfway through went, oh wait, now I know what I want to write. All right, and it was written directly after Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep and before Nick in the Gilmung, his one children's sci-fi book. Here's an interesting thing about Ubik is that it was, um, it was so it 
it was sold initially as a science fiction book club selection, which at the time is a very prestigious thing to have happen for a science fiction writer. So, and I want to give credit to that Pacifica interview, by the way, was with um, the, the DJ that interviewed him was Mike Hodall. And I did listen to part of that interview. Um, our friends at um, SFF Audio Podcast, Jesse, um, their episode of Ubik that they did maybe five years ago, long time ago, um, at the end of the episode, they sample for the last the last 12 minutes of the file on the on the podcast is is this interview. So you can hear it through there. I don't I tried to find it in other sources and I couldn't find it. So um, but somehow Jesse found it. So it's there. And I recommend their discussion on it. It's very good. Jesse, uh, other friends of the show, Marissa Van Uden and, and, you know, it's a good discussion. So, anywho, but we do have some PKD quotes. We've got a lot of quotes. In fact, I don't think we can probably do them all, but um, he was very talkative in this Pacifica interview specifically about Ubik. All I know today that I didn't know when I wrote Ubik is that Ubik isn't fiction. Ubik was primarily a dream or series of dreams. In my opinion, it contains strong themes of pre-Socratic philosophical views of the world unfamiliar to me when I wrote it. So, and I'm interested to get you guys' thoughts on this, too, is this idea that he may, you may not know whether you're alive or not or you've got this kind of thing going on. And it's funny to me because when I was reading it before I saw these quotes, it was really, I would not have imagined this was one of the books that, he took very personally. I don't know what do you guys think about this quote that he, that he saw it as a series of dreams. Did anybody like get that vibe when you're reading it? Uh, I didn't. Um, you know, I always feel like when when Philip K. Dick is talking about his stuff that um, he's like, I don't know what the word is for this. He's like um, post intellectualizing it, if that makes sense. You know, and I never quite buy the stuff he says about his books. I'd rather just read the books without him talking about the stuff. <laughs> yeah. Know? <laughs> oh, we got a few more quotes. <laughs> um, I think sometimes I often wonder if Dick isn't entirely sure of why he wrote what he wrote. So yeah. when asked to explain it, he kind of skirts around the subject by by saying, "Oh, it was a dream," or "Oh, it's not really fiction." And then you walks yeah. away, and you're like, "The fuck, this guy just say to me?" <laughs> I know. Yeah, or, or, or he starts talking about gnostic and numerology and all that stuff, and I'm like. You're just blowing smoke, you know. <laughs> but I still yeah, he pulls work. the oh, I Ching out of his pocket. Yeah. yeah. In this yeah. case, yeah. the themes of pre-Socratic <laughs> philosophical worlds. So, yeah. yeah. Um, pre-Socratic. Is there any Socrates here? I don't know. I just I think he's pulling that out of his butt. But there's a lot of really great stuff here. But I didn't see that. So the next one is very funny to me because. Um, we know that he was a prankster, that he tried to, that he made up some stuff just to be provocative and to just, and, and so I would really, we'll definitely want to talk to Tessa about this at some point and see if she has any more insight into this. But um, this, this quote about this letter that he got from Moscow, uh, Anthony, can you read that test? Uh, yeah, I got this letter direct from Moscow, signed by some fairly important scientists who invited me to visit Russia so they could talk to me. What on earth for, Hodel asked. <laughs> well, it seems they had read Ubik and had already formulated theories that the afterlife was remarkably close to what I had theorized in that novel. 
They wanted me to come over so they could find out what I knew and probably experiment on me to find out how I knew. And he said, you didn't go. Um, and then he said, I actually considered going for a while. I think this is just him playing around. Like, obviously, he's just making this up. Come on. There are no Russian scientists who are coming to Berkeley in the late 60s to be like, Mr. Dick, tell us about the afterlife. <laughs> you know, like... Yeah. Um, well, I, remember, he was uh, highly into amphetamines at this point, too, so... <laughs> Right. His memories might not have been too great. (laughs) I don't think we need to read the whole rest of the quote, but he really goes on. I already know. Yeah. um, (laughs) He talks about a black limousine, trench coats, and... Yeah, uh, some real Russian G-men showed up. I I think he's just talking talking shit. Yeah. Maybe it was was Jesse Ventura and Alex Trebek from the Jose Chung (laughs) X-Files episode. (laughs) (laughs) Right. <laughs> a man yeah. a man can dream. <laughs> um he really does I do think that the stream of consciousness thing that he was writing under, that he was going, you know, I think he made up I think he went back and added that the Ubik ads to the beginning of the book. I'm guessing they weren't there when he started writing mm-hmm. it. Yeah. And went back and added those. And uh, hilarious, by the way. Yeah, because this yeah. first part of the novel is is very clearly like uh, it's almost Inception, right? <laughs> right, mm-hmm. and it's it would have been a great novel on its own if he'd done a whole novel about anti psychic espionage and corporate espionage and done a whole thing on that. It would have been great. Would have been great. I would want like a solar lottery tone, right, to that, and and I think that would have been a great novel, but. It's clear once he gets into it, he's like, he has this other idea for for the Half-Life stuff. And we'll get more into that after our story breakdown. Uh, Larry, I think it's time. For what? Well, the story breakdown. Wow. Those. Yeah, we're we're out of practice. Not your, uh, your we haven't done that in months. Jeez, that was terrible. I think you know you know the 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 real like metal breakdown jokes really only work when we're in the room together. Yeah, I gotta. I think that's. I, think that's I gotta feed off David's mosh energy in real in real life in real meat space. We might have to actually make a drop for story breakdown. Yeah, some some sick riffs. Yeah, sick riffs, bra. All right, story breakdown. Larry, tell us what happened in Ubik. I have been told that I don't understand the books because these breakdowns are too uh, juvenile. So, so I guess yeah. some people just uh, – I, I, I guess I've found the Germans in the room, as they say. Well, I, I was going to tell David, don't, don't tell people we're scholarly because <laughs> this is definitely not scholarly. <laughs> Because <laughs> this is definitely not the, the podcast for that. All right. All right. So here's my book report. Uh, so we we start with the dude uh, in his office, and he finds out that there's people disappearing. There's uh, psychics disappearing all over the place, and it's been happening more and more, and a super powerful one just disappeared. And uh, he's like, oh, man, this sucks. I don't know what's going on. I got to go talk to my dead wife. So he goes and talks to his dead wife, and she's like, oh, there's a, 
I, I think you should do a thing. And then he says, all right, I'll do that thing. And then she starts talking in a different voice. And he's like, what the hell's going on? And then she she turns into this kid, Jory, and the uh, and uh, Herbert Schoenheit von Vogelsang says, ah, oh, that happens all the time. It's no big deal. And and our guy, Glenn Runciter, says, yeah, no, it's a big deal. So then that happens. So then we go to Joe Chip's house where he wakes up, he wakes up hungover, broke, broken, just a mess. No money to get out the door. He meets up with Gigi Ashwood and this hot girl, Pat Conley, who has a super secret power that she can visit sort of the past and change the past or change the present through the past, but she doesn't actually go into the past. It's a psychic journey into the past, but things do actually change. So that's her power. She uses it a couple of times, but not really. And, uh, oh, that whole thing about the psychics disappearing. Yeah. Forget about that too, because that really doesn't matter either. Uh, So they find out, that uh, there's a job that they can do. Our, our guy, Glenn Runciter, is like, oh, he's feeling bad about everything. His wife is kind of disappearing from life. He says, oh, this woman comes and says, hey, I got a job for you. He's like, bang, big job. We'll be back on our feet. We'll, we'll show that, uh, what's his name? Who's the, the enemy? Hollis? Yeah, Hollis. Yeah. We'll show that Hollis who's boss. And, and so they go to the moon with a bunch of people. It's Joe, Pat, and a, a bunch of other people. Then there's an explosion unexpectedly, and and uh, everyone dies. The end. Oh, no, wait. That's not the end. <laughs> oh, no. So what, what happens is there's an explosion, and Runciter dies. And... All the people are freaking out. They try to save his life. They go back to the ship. They don't get stopped. Even though they were attacked, they don't get stopped. So they're like, oh, man, what's going on? And so they go back. They try to revive him. And the dude, again, from Beloved Brethren Moratorium is like, oh, we couldn't do it. It sucks. You know, we tried and we're still trying. So our our main character, maybe our protagonist, says... This Joe Chip says, all right, we got to figure out what's going on, but I can't deal with it right now. And his buddy says, you should get a hotel and hang out and maybe get laid from that girl you like. And he's like, well, that's sort of a bad idea, but I'm, I'm for it. So then he goes and he ends up, you know, all the stress makes him pass out. He wakes up in the morning, no girl, answers the phone. It's the dead run center talk to, talking to him and or at least talking and not necessarily to him, but he is saying some relevant stuff. And then the moratorium guy shows up again and he's like, Oh, I, I was sent here by so-and-so to do a thing with you. And, and I shouldn't give you money. And maybe there's a dead person in the closet. So you should look in there. So he does look in the closet and lo and behold, there's a dead person in there. And then, so he doesn't know what's going on. He goes back to New York with his buddy Al, is it Al? Yeah, Al Hammond. And then Al's like, oh, I'm not feeling well, goes into the bathroom, and then he dies. 
and turns into a, a little baby skeleton. And then he goes into the conference room where everybody is supposed to be, but they're not there. And he watches a little movie that turns out to be a commercial for Ubik, starring the one and only Glenn Runciter. Runciter keeps showing up. He shows up on Money. He shows up in little notes that he's written in his handwriting. So our boy is very confused about what's happening. So he also finds out that Runciter's funeral is happening in Des Moines, Iowa, because, you know, that's the center of the heartbeat of the nation right there in Des Moines. Uh, yeah. So, Shout so out Des Moines. He, he tries to find a way to get to Des Moines, and time is all fluctuating, going crazy, steadily backwards, but not consistently backwards. So it, it goes in, in like chunks. Boom, all of a sudden it's in the 50s. Boom, all of a sudden he's in 1939. And he has to get a plane, and he gets a rickety old plane from a, from this guy or, or who flies him out to Des Moines. He's in Des Moines. He meets up with everyone. He's like, hey, every, some people are dead, and uh, so we're probably all going to die too unless we hang out together. And they're all like, oh, that's a great idea. And then a couple of people don't hang out with them, and they die. And then he's kind of going, oh, I think I think this is all Pat's fault. So he tries to blame Pat, and she thinks it's her too because she's, I think, insane. <laughs> I think she's a little bit psychotic. A little bit, maybe. And so she thinks she's doing it. He thinks she's doing it. We have our red snapper. And then we move on to... Uh, you know, Joe is starting to experience the same coldness and the oldness and the the fading out that every other person that has died so far has felt. He tries to climb the stairs with Pat mocking him the whole time. He gets up the stairs, and all this stuff is, you know, it's the end. It's the end for Joe Chip. It's the end of everything. And he still is so confused that he gets into this room to die, and there sits... Runciter, and he's like, hey, you're not going to die. I have Ubik. <laughs> and he sprays him with this, this can of Ubik, and all of a sudden Joe feels better, and Runciter explains that it's not he didn't die. It's all of them that died in this explosion on the moon. And he says, you know what? I've been trying to get through to you, and this is the first time I've been able to actually get through in person to speak to anyone here. So there's some stuff going on. He thinks he, he tries to make it like he knows what's going on, but Joe figures out he doesn't know what's going on, and there's other players involved. Turns out this is a battle between good and evil within our people that are stuck in the half-life, frozen half-life bowl. And the bad guy turns out to be dun, 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 that teenager from the beginning. And the good guy turns out to be dun, 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 Ella, which we kind of knew it was going to be Runciter's wife. Well, at least I did. I mean, there wasn't anybody else left for it to be. So we find out who's good and who's evil. Uh, Joe gets some more Ubik and keeps hanging out and then trying to figure out how to get rid of this jewelry kid figures out he can't get rid of this jewelry kid. Ella says, you're not going to get rid of this jewelry kid, but you're going to take my place 
and be Runciter's, you know, go-to advice guy for as long as you're dead, or as long as you're only half dead, only sort of dead. And he says, all right, that's kind of sucky, but cool. And then uh, then it ends. Mm-hmm. That's Ubik. All right. So there's a lot of essays out there on Ubik. There's a lot of writing. Um, Ken Stanley Robinson devotes a lot of time in his book on the novels of Philip K. Dick to Ubik. So I will have some quotes from that. Um, specifically, one that I want to kind of start the discussion with is there's this essay by Peter Fitting, who I'm not familiar with, but it's one that Kim Stanley Robinson quotes a lot from this essay called The Deconstruction of Bourgeois Science Fiction, where he basically... Oh, boy. Sounds like a joy to read. (laughs) (laughs) But what he's arguing is, is that PKD, with this book, is refusing to... that he's using a plot not to make sure that this story never really fully explains itself and that it's confusing on purpose. And I'm wondering how, and maybe we'll start with Steven, like how do you feel about the idea that Ubik was meant or written to be confusing? Did, did, how did you feel about this idea that he's refusing to give any logical solutions in this book? You know, I guess him saying that reminds me of what I've heard about Heidegger, that he would write a, you know, a little treatise or an essay or whatever, a, a you know, philosophical thing. And he had a little coterie of friends that he would circulate among and he'd go meet them and they'd say, you know, I understand this. I understand this. And he'd say, um, he'd say, well, I got to redo it. He'd, he'd rewrite it until it became more and more obscure. Nobody can understand it. You know, um, I don't, I don't feel like that's actually what um, PKD is doing. Um, I feel like he's just following his instincts and kind of, um, I don't know, expressing his paranoia, if that makes sense. Um, but, you know, for me, Ubik does make sense. I don't think it is a confounding knot or a, you know, a Gordian knot for um, Adrian Veidt to, to cut through or anything like that, you know. Um, I think that the same way that the – I think the novel builds its own key for how to understand it. I think that um, – we're led to believe that Hollis is the antagonist and Hollis is never actually on screen or on page. I don't think. Um, Except for one. Is he? Yeah. Okay. All right. Um, goes up and, and he, he talks to, uh, to Joe once. Okay. But he's, he's made to be the big bad guy, but he's, he's not really there, you know, and it turns out that Jory is the real bad guy. And I think if we apply that same dynamic, like if we magnify it and make it bigger, then we can understand that Jory is also a false front and there's something behind Jory. And I feel like that last little bit where Ubik comes in and says, I am Ubik. I feel like Ubik is right there being um, the, it's like Puck coming in at the end of Midsummer's Night Dream, you know, to comment on things. And um, I think, I think Ubik is actually the one maintaining this whole reality we live in as far as this novel is concerned. And, it's just, it's like, it, we were talking about Supernatural earlier. Um, the way that Chuck in Supernatural is, um, he's just like playing games with people. You know, I feel like that's what Ubik is doing. And it's inserting these little spray cans that people can feel like they are protected and they're getting ahead. But I think what, what Philip K. Dick is actually trying to smuggle across to us is the, um, the 
sense of distrust we should have about any kind of divine presence, you know? And uh, so to me, it makes sense, you know, if you read it like that, but, but you're, but I mean, that one dude, whoever you were talking about, David is right, that there are multiple reads of this. You can probably, this book is, it's kind of like Joyce Carol Oates, um, where are you going? Where have you been? It's got a lot of parallel reads that all, they're not mutually exclusive. You know, you can read it like this, like this, like this, like this. And, and any story or novel that has those parallel non-mutually exclusive reads um, tends to have long legs, you know? And Ubik has had very long legs as far as PKD's catalog is concerned, you know? Right. Yeah, you, your frame of mind matters. I mean, how you read it, when you yeah. read it, how old you are, what what is your wisdom yeah. level? You know, I know I read it totally different when I was in my early 20s. That was... Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, you know, this... this this is probably my fourth or fifth time to read this novel. And like, um, and, and Larry, you were saying that, um, um, we all knew that Ella was going to, you know, be the surprise force of good. And, and I, this is like my fifth time through this book and I was still surprised by it. <laughs> I can't figure it out. You know? Um, I, I mean, little dramatic things he does. Like you, you also mentioned the red herring that, um, Pat is, you know, she's a wonderful red herring. She makes us completely convinced that this group of, um, prudence people are, stuck in like a Langoliere's past that mm-hmm. she has created, you know, she's taken them back to a branching node and it's decaying around them, you know, but because we're all focused on that, we don't allow the possibility that they're in cold pack, you know, that they're in a half life. And um, I think it's dramatically, this book is really, really crafty. It really misleads us or it takes advantage of our expectations. Once we know we're reading science fiction anyways. Well, one thing that's interesting is I think, um, you know, I read it one time, long time ago. So this is my second time reading you, Dick. And I don't think I got it as much when I read it. I was too young. I, I wasn't ready. But I also think that reading it after having read, now that we're reading his entire, you know, oeuvre in order, I think if I had read Ubik on its own without having read the entire catalog, up to it, it would have been more powerful of a book, but because he's done this private cosmos. Yeah, Eye in the Sky. Um, yeah, Wait for Last Year. Um, yeah. Martian Time Slip, Three Stigmata, they're all kind of private. Time Out of Joint. Time you know. Out of Joint, yeah. So he's played with these ideas before, and I think that if you're just a reader who maybe you saw it on the list of Time's 100 Best English Language Novels, mm-hmm. and you haven't read everything that he's done, it's going to be way more mind-blowing. Anthony, did you... Well, what's interesting here, too, is that he's also drawing from the antagonist from the Cosmic Puppets, which, as everyone knows, we all unanimously disliked, of a kind of, like, a kid, a shitty kid who's never had a chance to, like, grow up and live, so he's manipulating all these other people as an outlet for his own personal rage, which I thought was kind of interesting, because we haven't seen Dick do that since the Cosmic Puppets. Yeah, Maybe I, a little bit. In I mean, I would have liked though. to known Jory a little more as a as a character. That would have been mm-hmm. nice to have more more motivation behind just sheer survival. Well, he's he's a stock villain. I mean, if you want to call him a villain, so to speak, he, he's pretty, yeah. pretty one dimensional character, I but interesting sure. nonetheless. I but he's, he's sure. also a, he's also a function of nature. Like they say that in all these Tilpec units, these half life facilities. There always rises a jury, right? Mm-hmm. Like one, mm-hmm. once, yeah. once the dreams ver- the dreams merge, or not the dreams, the half lives merge. I'm thinking of dream vortexes from Sandman, I guess, which is very similar <laughs> to these dreams merging. Yeah. Um, 
but th once the half-lax merge, that there does always ri arise a Jory, and the Jory is hungry, I guess, you know? So, yeah, Jory is for sure the antagonist. I, I don't know if I'd call him evil, finally. I think he's just, he's just, um, he's like a leopard. A leopard's going to eat you if you're around, you know? Mm. Yeah. The, All right. What so, is it, the scorpion and the frog? Yeah, yeah. Before we get back to some overall thoughts, I want to go. I want to dig deep on some of the different uh, themes that are in here. And the first one I want to go to is I want to talk about the anti-sci prudence organizations. I want to talk about that aspect of it because we all agree that you could have built a whole novel out of that. And yeah. for example, if you were to do, and and really, like it's impossible not to think of Inception when you're when you're reading this, the move, the Christopher Nolan movie. Because I, I didn't think of it once. I didn't think of it at all. Oh, really? Because <laughs> there, Vanilla Sky. You, Vanilla Sky. I thought of that though. Man. Yeah. Well, I didn't think of it. Uh, yeah, but I, I thought a lot of Eye in the Sky. I can too, see yeah, both. Because, yeah. because he's using a lot of the same tricks he used in Eye in the Sky for this book. Yeah. And also, he's he's kind of cutting. He's doing the book in two pieces, like Radio Free Album Move, too, a little bit. You know. So, um, but what's going on with the anti-side thing is similar to Inception because with Inception you have the corporate spies that are stealing dreams, right? And so it's the corporate espionage aspect of it. And if you were to build a whole novel off of it, it'd kind of be similar to that. And if you, yeah, but it's kind of like Vulcan's Hammer in that sense. It, I mean, in that it's a it's a, a computer doing it, an AI. Mm -hmm. But you know, it's the sort of the same story, isn't it? With the whether it's whether it's psychics or whether it's a computer, it's this corporate espionage with with science fiction elements. So, all right. So the first uh, scene that I wanted to kind of pull out from about the prudence organizations, which anybody have any comment on that that they're called prudence organizations? Because I, I like it. I like it. It makes it's it's really on the nose. <laughs> yeah, it's very funny. Um, but we get all of, of the PKD. All the terms are in this one, the conaps, the homeopapes, the, uh, but right here when we talk about the prudence organizations, telepaths and precogs mostly, they're nowhere on earth, I know that. They've got a dozen inactive inertials, so the inertials are the ones that are anti-psychics, with nothing to do because the size they've been nullifying aren't around. And what worries me even more, a lot more, is that requests for anti-size have dropped which you would expect given the fact that there are so many, there are so many sides missing. I love the idea that they've done such a good job getting rid of the psychics and telepaths. So, so is that ever explained? I, did I miss something? Where, where are all these, these uh, psychics? Well, I, I think what he's trying to imply was is that there used to be a real big problem with psychics and precogs and telepaths, and they were all kind of running amok. And they created these anti-prudent, these prudence organizations, these anti-sci organizations, to clean up the mess. And now they're all on other colony worlds, or they're all out in the frontier. Well, they said they're, they're, they don't exist anywhere. Well, they do. I think they exist in the frontier. And this gets back to that whole thing that Evan Lane. Well, he specifically says they don't exist. <laughs> mm, he they sent them all to psychic jail, Larry. I don't know. <laughs> Right. Okay. So. Okay. So it's not me. It is something that's kind of. It's kind a little of left, vague. Left it's vague. A little vague. Yeah. Yeah. I got the impression that they they had moved out to the frontier, and you know when, when like like our our friend of the podcast Evan Lampy like he talks so much about PKD and the frontier, 
And we get less of direct mentions. There's not as many direct mentions to the frontier in Ubik, but I think this idea that um, we know that there is more colonies and stuff out there because they went to the moon pretty easily. But eh, we're just going to go to Luna, you know. And then, so we know that there is... Well, they don't have hyperdrive or whatever it is yet. Yeah, because... Just working on that. They're just working on that, yeah. And um, uh, I like the idea that they have... That, that they specialize in different kinds of talents. So, like, Pat's the one who can kind of move in and out of time, right? And so I like this idea that there's different talents and psychics and that's where I think you could have built a whole novel out of it. But he does use it very well here for the red snapper. Um, <laughs> and uh, shout out to Perfect Getaway. Um, but they do, they, I think the idea that they have these, the psychics are out there, it's kind of funny and you, that it's, it's just kind of given. But that's just a PKD thing. But as far as the prudence organizations goes, there's also the idea that they're um, exterminators, right? And there's a line. I like when when they get to the moon and Stanton Mick is giving them their mission, right? And he says, hello, all you top anti-size. And then uh, he says, the exterminators are here. And by that, I mean you, yourselves, right? Uh, the plague in the form of various psionic riffraff descended upon the harmless, friendly, peaceful world of Stanton Mick. What a day it was for us in Mickville, um, as we call our attractive and appetizing lunar settlement here. So um, there's that's where the psychic that's where they are. They're all up on the moon, fucking with with Mick Stanton. So you know they they get hired to come to these places and clean things up. So um, I loved that scene. That scene cracked me up. I thought that was one of the. <laughs> The really funny parts. Um, do you guys have any other comments about the whole um, prudence organization and the and the anti side thing? That's what I have. You know, I didn't. Um, they are called exterminators. I guess the way I read the novel, if I read the novel as some kind of um, divine entity playing games with us, then it makes sense that that divine entity would allow these people to feel like protagonists by removing size from the story, you know? So it's just like any excuse will do to get this, these other people out of the way such that you guys can have the spotlight, you know? Because um, we all want to feel like we're in the spotlight when we're either characters in our own stories or we're reading... I mean, I don't know. It, to me, it makes sense, you know? But, um, yeah, I, I can see where people would see it. So they would call it like a narrative stub or something, you know, that... um. We don't know where. They, I mean, they possibly they're on Luna. Possibly that's a a a, um, a lure to a bait to get them there. You know, I don't know. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I'm I'm kind of bummed we didn't get this EKD novel about the anti size like more directly. You know, uh, I kind of mm -hmm. wish we got that because I think that would have been pretty <laughs> good. All right, David. So here's here's what it says. Uh, we asked Joe Chip to go in there and run tests on the magnitude and minitude of the field, blah, blah, blah. The technician finished. So that's where we stuck Melopone's ident flag on the map. And now he, it, is gone. Did he look on the floor behind the map? It's gone electronically. The man it represents is no longer on Earth or, as far as we can make out, on a colony world either. So okay. it, it basically all disappeared out of existence. 
Okay. They, they, the Blade Runners hunted them down. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. You would think they would know if they got killed, then they would still. Yeah. Yeah, totally. All right. So the next, unless you guys got anything else in the Prince organization, I'm going to move on to Private Cosmos and go more deep on that. Um, because this is my favorite, this is one of my favorite PKD themes. And the, and I actually think that each time he go, gets into it, um, he does like a better job of exploring it. Um, we all know, you guys all know that I love Eye in the Sky. Eye in the Sky is one of my, my favorite of the 50s. Let me give you this quote from Kim Stanley Robinson from his, his um, book. Uh, he says, Martian time slip three stigmata, now wait for last year and Ubik are good examples of the private cosmos time travel. Adrift in time as a result of drugs or madness or both, the protagonists of these four novels learn to regard a, a return to the past as a horrifying regression into a dead, immutable world. <laughs> um, and I really, one of the things that I really liked about how he kind of is priming the reader for this is coming was the introduction that everybody just kind of has the Tibetan book of the dead <laughs> in this yeah. future, you know, that the Tibetan book of the dead is like this, um, it's like Dianetics in the eighties. <laughs> right. Um, exactly. And I thought, let's see, that was on page 12 and, um, Ella introduces it by saying, I was dreaming. I saw a red smoky, a smoky red light, a horrible light. And then Runster says, yeah, the Bardot Tibetan book of the dead tells about that. You remember reading that the doctors made you read it when you were, and then he hesitated dying. He said, so the smoky red light, I, I really love the imagery of that, 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 that that's like, don't go fully to that red light because that's going to end your half-life. But that this, that the Tibetan book... Oh, no, it's a bad rebirth. It's not just ending your half-life. Yeah, you're going to be born again. And so... The, and Poorly. That, yeah. That's the point. It's not, you're just going to be born again. You're going to be born again poorly. Yeah, exactly. And then, but I love that, that people read the Tibetan Book of the Dead to be, get ready for, to go with Vogel's song and let and be this half-life which he doesn't really go too much into it but it seems like the half-life thing is definitely a bourgeois like a, a rich person thing yeah and she gets to do it because she's this kind of rich know, she's rich she's got it um anybody have any thoughts on this uh how the how the half-life is introduced um i thought it was great yeah, yeah i was really impressed with it i thought, I thought that i thought that um the reason that Ella ambushes me as being actually important to the story is that I thought she was just a way to dramatize this exposition about the half-life, you know? So I thought she was going to be used and disposed of. And so I was really surprised when she came back, you know? Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, I thought she was just going to be taken over by Jory, and that was it. That was the end of her. Yeah, I remember getting halfway through the book and thinking – thinking back on that first, those first couple chapters and thinking, God, it's kind of a, a, a way to, I guess, to get to know Runciter, but we seem to focus a lot on what's happening with her in the cold pack, and then it just kind of seemed like a, a, not a useless chapter, but a weird chapter, but then it all kind of connects and comes. Yeah, another dead way. end, another PKD dead end there, but it, it's <laughs> totally not. Yeah. And what's interesting is the actual, 
like kind of defining what Half-Life is doesn't take place till 80, page 83 of the Mariner edition. Um, when, he, when Eddie Dorn says, it was a Swiss invention, and according to impartial surveys, the average length of Half-Life given an individual in the Swiss moratorium is two full hours greater than an individual in ours. The Swiss seem to have a special knack. And then Joe says the UN should abolish half-life, interfering with the natural process of cycle of birth and death. I thought that was really interesting that he didn't really actually say like, oh yeah, it's a Swiss invention here to give the actual details until 83 pages in is, is pretty interesting too. Well, I think to yeah. his credit, to Dick's credit, he didn't need to. Sorry, Stephen, go ahead. No, yeah, I agree. I think, I suspect, I mean, it'd be interesting to look at his original manuscript, but it feels kind of like a note from an ed editor who said, all right, there's going to be, you know, six out of 13 readers out there who wonder what Half-Life is. Can you please give us a little info dump about what that is, you know? Right. Yeah, I, I totally agree. Yeah. So one of the cool things about how he he reveals the the fact that they're in this Half-Life, right, because they think they're taking Renster mm -hmm. to it. There's a couple things, too, and it was funny because I just saw the other day on Facebook somebody was – I saw a post where somebody said, if I see Glenn Rensiter on a, on a quarter, I'm out of here. And uh, <laughs> I thought that was very funny because I think that the different subtle ways that he reveals that they're in Half-Life are so much better done than some of the earlier books where he did this. Um, you know, as much as I love Eye in the Sky, some of the reveals are clunky, but the time regression with the stale cigarettes, the, um, the food getting spoiled and bad, yeah, no, I, t I totally agree with that, David. Um, I think that the effect of that for the reader, for the whole audience, really, is that it charges our world with more meaning. We we now might get a pack of stale cigarettes and we'll hesitate for a minute, minute and look around, like, are we in the Matrix or what's going on? You know, and I think when a book can do that for us, when it can change our world, you know, or the way we interface with the world, I think that's wonderful. Yeah, absolutely. And, and he does this in... Uh, a couple really interesting and subtle ways that I think just show a command of the story. Um, and once he, he really starts playing with it for jokes, then, you know, we're, we're further in it. But I think the appearance of the coins, the, the money and, and the subtle things are done so well. And that's one of the mm -hmm. things I just really love here. You know, and rent Rensiter's face appearing on the, the currency and stuff that's um, Stephen King in his recent collection of novellas. If it bleeds has a story called the life of Chuck, I think. And he has that exact same dynamic going on where this guy, Chuck, his face is on all the billboards and it's everywhere. And it's so cloying and claustrophobic and evocative. It's really, it's really a cool trick, you know? Yeah. And then of course there's a moment where he turns, where he picks up the phone and he hears Glenn Rensiter's voice. Um, <laughs> I like that. He says, my phone's broken. He's just hearing his voice like, yeah, my phone's broken. I just, I, I got this, this thing. And, um, but one of my favorites in that was Glenn writing in the bathroom, obviously is going to be one of those moments that everyone talks about in this book. I think the reveal of the jump in the urinal, stand on your head. I'm the one that's alive and you're all dead is a great reveal. Um, as a writer, Stephen, what do you think about this as a, as a reveal? No, it, you know, it was really an effective reveal, I agree. And it, the reason it was effective was because at that point in the story, I was 100% subscribed to the um, 
possibility that they were in Pat Conley's past rather than Half-Life, you know? And so the this sense that Glenn Runciter is speaking to Joe Chip through some medium that we can't quite it, – that it's a very problematized medium. You know, he might be speaking into a microphone, but it comes up as bathroom graffiti or how, however it's working, you know, mechanically. Um, yeah, I was really, I was really impressed with it. And not just, not just with how it's staged, but it, where it comes in the story, you know, because it like, like it just comes at a point where it pulls the rug out from under me that I thought was solid, you know? Mm -hmm. And um, also in the, Private cost. Well, um, well. Before I get to that, Anthony, what did you think of the reveal? Because I'm interested in your thoughts on on how on on whether this scene worked for you or not. Because you're. I, I think. Go ahead. No, because you're the most skeptical of, of 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 some of these kinds of reveals and moments. But I, I think in in a lesser writer's hands, I, I it would have been more obvious from the start. But Dick approaches this trend. Dick's transitions are almost always seamless. When we move from reality to, I guess, what would you call irreality, unreality, a new reality, there's never a moment, I think, so in a less skilled writer's hands, I think you'd have a moment where somebody gets knocked out, they wake up, and now stuff is different. Whereas what Dick does is it just changes without ever letting you know. So when you look at the mm -hmm. scene when um, Stanton Mick explodes... That's the moment that we transition from them being alive to them being in cold pack. But all you get is the bomb exploded and then them kind of escaping from that. Well, there, right? is, a, there is a tell, though. Where? Because he does that same transition uh, before when she, when Pat yeah. uh, proves her, yeah. her, her skill or, or her power. Are you and, saying before or after? Before it's before, yeah, and and that's the, the fact that we have seen that transition before. That's what led me to believe that the second transition was Pat also, which was a wonderful yeah. misdirect. And, yeah. uh, that's what I liked about it as well. Is that misdirect? I guess yeah. I missed it. Mm. Yeah, when she when she does the whole year where they get married, yeah, yeah. And, uh, and all that stuff, it, mm -hmm. it uses the same same transition. Wasn't she trying to get the job from him at that point? Was yeah. That yeah, 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 yeah. That was great. That was really. Yeah. Yeah, that was a very good. Yeah, moment. well, I, I I assume that that was what was going on, but I think what I'm more getting at is that from a from a total from a craftsman level, that Dick never really tells you that it's changed. Yeah. It's just yeah, no, no. I know what you're saying. Yeah, 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 that makes perfect sense. Yeah, no, he he does. Dick does like narrative escalation without a ramp, you know, and it's really exactly. cool because you just you just walk from one place to another and you don't you don't feel the difference, you know. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, then I want to. It's a great way to go. It's it's uh you know who does that also is is David Lynch in his movies. He doesn't yeah. feel the need to to carry you along, and that's yeah. what and that's what Dick does as well. Is he just says, you know, this the story's moving forward. Keep up. Yeah, yeah. Well, so next I want to within the private cosmos uh, arena. I want to talk about Chekhov's mutual osmosis between mental half lifers which is um, the intro to Jory. Um, and, and I do think that what was great about that is, is that he does put it out there, and we should remember that Jory should be important, but we kind mm -hmm. of forget about it. And, mm -hmm. and I do think that um, that's one of the things that's good, too, is because he does pepper within the story 
because he gets because we've and listen, we've given Dick a lot of shit for not plotting well on this podcast. No, 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 no. You've given him shit for not plotting. <laughs> oh well. no, I have as well. Some of the more ambiguous me. stuff does work for me. Right, but we've given you've given him shit for not plotting well too. <laughs> Come on, I, go back and listen. Anthony to trying to take the high ground. Yeah, don't take the high ground. For which here. one, David? Go back. No, I wasn't trying to take the high ground. I'm just saying, when Dick gets real surreal and vague, it's kind of my thing. I really enjoy yeah. that stuff. But. Okay, so, but my point is, is that this book is probably his best plotted that I've read so far, in my opinion. And what's really cool about, and, and Jory is the example that I want to use on that, because when we look back to books like, um, especially as much as I liked like the world Jones made, it's just like, he's throwing out shit, you know, like left and right. And he's just like, yeah, here it goes. And it's really easy to read Ubik and think he's just throwing shit out. But, and when he tells you, I was just kind of writing for a dream. I, I believe he did in the first draft, but I think this book got a serious second draft. Once he yeah. knew what the story was. Now I think he went back and he like with the elements, with jewelry, with Pat, he was so well setting up the trick. I cannot believe he just did that from the seat of his pants. I feel like that there was a serious second draft. And yeah, other than the the tonal difference between the prior to to the explosion and after the explosion in in the humor level and and the and just the the direction of the story, I think you're you're absolutely right that he he must have spent way more time on this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, you know, talking about about his plotting, like Game of Death is really well plotted. I think. I think he, PKD can plot. I think he's not interested in like setting up dominoes and knocking them down. He's interested in giving um the most quiet whispered clues here and then here and here. And it, you have to if you hear those whispers right, then everything makes sense. You know. Now, what do you guys think? Now, Kim Stanley Robinson, I had this quote where he said. In Ubik, the nature of reality, the nature of reality problem or the reality breakdown is the central experience of the narrative. Do you agree with that? Because I don't, actually. Yeah, I don't, I don't think yeah, I do either. No. Yeah. Uh, We're all going to d- disagree with Mr. Robinson here. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I, I don't think it is. Because when I read that quote, I was like, no, because I think that there is a reality here. And all these people that spent all this time writing about Ubik and talking about how it's so crazy and it's so weird, it, it's like it's like the, the experience that when you figure out what Mulholland Drive is about, for yeah. example, right? The first I've been trying know, to find a way to bring up Mulholland Drive. <laughs> yeah. Because it, it is very similar to this book in a lot of ways. Right. When you first watch Mulholland Drive, yes, you sit there and go, what the fuck is this about? But as soon as you figure out what Mulholland Drive actually is, which is very similar story to you, Vic, like you said, then you go back and watch it again. It makes perfect sense. And you feel like a freaking idiot for not getting it the first time. Well, because it, both of these stories, uh, Mulholland Drive and Ubik, seem super complicated. But I think Stephen said this earlier. They're, it's not super complicated, you know. It very much follows a track. As long if you can see the track, there's, you know, it's, it's not that hard to understand. It's not that out you, there and crazy. You just got What you got to do is just um, like Philip K. Dick is real good at waving his hand over here while he's doing something on the side over here. And if yeah. you can 
Blinder, if you can turn off these people wearing Argyle socks with tutus and weird hats, if you can turn that off, then you can pay attention to what he's really doing, you know? Yeah. So uh, That brings yeah. up a good point, though. The fashion sense, I, it, he doesn't really do a good job, I, in my opinion, of transitioning the fashion sense as the world changes. Yeah, so I, it's I, like was, I was actually curious. Are they still wearing, you know, alligator trousers and stuff like that? As they're going into the past, yeah, I feel like um, he he dresses these people in in Ubik the same way Back to the Future Two dresses twenty fifteen kids, <laughs> yeah. you know, if, if that makes just ridiculous. <laughs> right. But I think he I think he's doing it either to signal to us that he's not writing about the future, he's writing about nineteen sixty nine, or he's doing it he's putting people in these weird clothes as a way of making fun of all the other science fiction writers who are trying to actually guess what we're going to be doing in 30 years. Or yeah, well, he, does, he does it in other books too. And I feel like yeah. it is a joke yeah. to him. He, he's yeah, so. going off yeah. on this riffing on this, <laughs> this yeah. joke of his. Yeah. All right. So anything else on the private cosmos? Cause that's the last thing I have on that. So now well, I do, I do have a quote that I, I'd like, and this might be a good spot for it. Uh, I think this is, my favorite quote in the book and it's kind of at the beginning and it's Pat. Uh, and it says, it bothers me that people will feel hostile toward me, but I guess you can't live very long without arousing hostility. You can't please everybody because people want different things. Please one and you displease another. I feel like that's, that's all very yeah. humanistic and, and everyone can kind of relate to that but it also is amplified when you have magic powers, mm. you know, that, that well, when you have mag when you have magic writing powers, like he does, and you're a novelist, you have to kind of repeat that to yourself as a way of not listening to all the bad stuff people say about you. Yeah. Right. <laughs> you, <know>? <laughs> you have <laughs> writing powers that aren't recognized in your time. Yeah. yeah. This is yeah. a fantastic quote. I thought, I thought yeah. it was a great line of dialogue and a, just a great, uh, it has a great meaning behind it. It does. It's kind of um, him using that character as a sock puppet to say what he wants to say, which is yeah. great, you know? And yeah. I love when he does that. He, he does that yeah. in, uh, a lot. Well, maybe yeah, not a lot, but well, yeah, I'm glad he when he do it more. <laughs> I'm glad when he uses his books to communicate his feelings. His not, thoughts, yeah. Yet not right. about his wives. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> anytime he does it about anything other than the ex-wives. Yeah. Uh, but you do get uh, real he does give real insight into who he is and how he thinks in in certain yeah. certain passages yeah. yeah and you always know when he's going through a divorce so yeah that's true <laughs> <laughs> yeah clans of the alphane moon for example but um, oh, we're city. yeah yeah <laughs> great one yeah so um i want to next the next theme i want to talk about is ubik the product um and the idea that ubik Ubik is the product fighting entropy and, you know, and, and doing this is really funny. But um, when I was reading through, going back, looking for quotes, the one that really made me laugh was on um, page 133. And this is my absolute favorite of the Ubik parts when the, he turns on the TV and there's the face of Glenn Renster there. And he says, tired of lazy taste buds? Renser said in his familiar gravelly voice, has boiled cabbage taken over your food? The same old stale, flat Monday morning odor, no matter how many dimes you put in your stove, which is great. Um, 
Ubik changes all that. Ubik wakes up food flavor, puts hearty taste back in where it belongs, and restores that fine food smell. And then I'm going to skip a little bit. And then one invisible puff puff whisk of economically priced Ubik banishes the compulsive, oppressive fears that the entire world is turning into clotted milk. Um, I thought when I read that, I almost fell out of my chair the first time. And then when I reread it, I laughed out loud again. Um, This to me is one of the funniest things PKD's ever written. That really cracks me up. I can see it totally. And I, and I think it so well speaks to the idea that Ubik is just, um, you know, shake the can and fight entropy, you know, just that last line, like um, banishes the compulsive, oppressive fears that the entire world is turning into clotted milk. Um, yeah. yeah. You can pretty much replace, replace Ubik with the ShamWow and it's just the same, you know? <laughs> right. And um, of course, um, if anybody ever does make a Ubik movie, there's going to be hilarious infomercials that are a part of it. Mm-hmm. And if they were smart, and we're, we usually talk about this later, but if they were smart, they would be doing viral videos to yeah. oh, yeah. the movie for months for ahead of marketing. Yeah. Yeah, like, yeah, there'd be an insufferable Comic-Con ad campaign all over downtown. Sure. <laughs> right. There definitely um, would be. Yeah. <laughs> and just the videos popping up everywhere with, you know, you know, make your oatmeal more Ubiki. You know. Well, uh, you know what my favorite part about the Ubik ads is is the uh, the dark tone at the end of most of them. The warnings, <laughs> only if used as directed. You know, follow the the rules. All that, all that sort of. I, I mean, it's almost like a 1984 oppressiveness yeah. that he's adding to the end of all those ads. Do it the right way, or your skin sloughs off. Yeah, exactly. It's a, I'm not sure I have uh, this part uh, set aside, but I also love that there's uh, a, um, a techno babble explanation. Oh, of, I have that. Oh, you do? Yeah. From the uh, end? Yeah. From, from near yeah. the end? Yeah. yeah. You want to hear that? Yes, yeah, I do. Okay. The negative ions are given a counterclockwise spin by a radically biased acceleration chamber, which creates a centri- centripetal tendency to to them so that they cohere rather than dissipate. A negative ion field diminishes the velocity of anti-protophasons normally present in the atmosphere. As soon as their velocity falls, they cease to be anti-protophasons and under the principle of parity, no longer can unite with protophasons radiated from persons frozen in cold pack. That's the, yeah, uh, so I read that like I read all my old sci- like school science textbooks. Uh-huh. It's, it's so funny. It's such, I, I like, such it bad science. I, I love how it's followed up with, you don't have to say negatively, negatively charged ions. Yeah, you can just say ions. <laughs> ions are already negatively charged. <laughs> um, and so early on in this podcast, we, we would do a lot of the pseudoscience because there was more of it. He just kind of quit doing that for mm-hmm. for years. So for us to have a wackadoo, that's what we call it. Yeah, we call it wackadoo. It is right. wackadoo science, pseudoscience. <laughs> just great. And it, it is page 137 where, and I love how there's a couple different scenes where somebody says, what is Ubik? And they don't really get an answer until 137. Um and that's where Runster 
Runzer and Ubik, Ubiquity, he realized all at once that the deprivation of the made-up word, the name of Runster's alleged spray can product. So it's not really till 138 that it's even like... Yeah, but Runster doesn't know what it is. Yeah. <laughs> he doesn't, yeah. But you know that, that wackadoo science, um, one, back in probably 02 or 03, Octavia Butler, I brought her to my class to talk to my students, and the, for the whole class, her and I argued about whether Philip K. Dick was science fiction or not, and because of that wackadoo science, she said he's not. She she was insistent that science fiction is an extension of existing technology. So it ha- and, has to include real science? Yeah, real science, yeah, and of course, you know, Philip K. Dick is not interested in that remotely, you know? Um, mm. he, he likes to adopt the jargon to make fun of it, but he's not interested, really. Um and I was only, when, I was only when it comes to psychology does he yeah anywhere yeah, near yeah, actual science, but yeah anything else yeah. he doesn't care. Can I just say how incredibly jealous I am of your students in 2003 that I <laughs> watch you and Octavia Butler argue whether Philip K. Dick is science fiction? <laughs> that's that's amazing. Um, it was fun. Yeah. What, what a moment to see. Um, well, well, yeah, the wackadoo science of it and the name you. I mean, I guess I always knew reading it that that Ubik kind of meant ubiquity when like it's obvious from the from the ads, but I like that it doesn't really that it only gets spelled out this one time and it's only kind of said once and it, it does kind of scream of um uh editorial notes um there too. Um I'm not sure who edited yeah. the, this novel cuz we're at double day here not um yeah. Talking about the the spray, the ubiquity, you know, that gets sprayed on everything. I wonder, I didn't ever think about this, but I wonder if that's in dialogue with Ken Kesey's Harvester from One Floor of the Cuckoo's Nest, which is the idea that across society there's a harvester or there's a flattening agent that comes and makes everything the same, you know? And it seems like spraying everything with ubiquity would make everything the same, you know? Um, So I I wonder if if they're in dialogue. I mean, I wonder if Dick – was answering Ken Kesey, you know? I don't know. Um, oh, I would, I would love to know that that's true. That yeah. That would be amazing. Yeah. yeah. Um, I would say um, for Stephen, the, the, um, your theory on, on Ubik being yeah. the monster basically itself, I think page 162 of the Mariner edition is, um, I think kind of gives credence to it. it t- it's where they're talking about the Ubik dreams and they're having, and um, Joe says, we haven't gone anywhere, we're where we've always been, and for some reason, one of the several possible reasons reality has receded is it's lost its underlying support and it's ebbed back to its previous forms. It took, fi- it, it took 53 years ago, it may regress further, but on the next page, he starts talking about it being the aerosol can, and down on that lower on the page, he says, um, it wasn't like any dream I've ever had before. A great hand came down from the sky like the arm and the hand of God, an enormous size of a mountain, and I knew how important at the time it was. The hand was closed, and then the hand has the spray can, and that's the – I think yeah. that adds credence to your theory, that page. Yeah. That's yeah. cool. That's, that's good. That also, that. again, reminds me of Cosmic Puppets. You know, there's a there's a couple of things in this book that really – bring back cosmic puppets in a, in a strong way and not, uh, not in a bad way. Yeah. In a better way. Yeah. 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 He's improved on the ideas and 
but he does have that element of good versus evil that he has in cosmic puppets in here, you know, that, and uh, like Anthony said about the, the, the jury being basically an analog. Yeah. Yeah. Same kid. Um, So I have a couple quotes from the next thing that I have is the next kind of theme that I wanted to talk about is, is the story consistent? And I think we all kind of already stated that we think it is consistent, but a lot of, now, do we are we talking about plot holes or something like that? Yeah, is the story of Ubik cons- consistent? And and um, a lot of the Kim Stanley Robinson and Stanislaw Lem quotes um, are about the book being so crazy or doesn't make sense or you know. Um, and so I have this quote from Kim Stanley Robinson where he's talking about Lem's essay on it, the one that I sent you guys. He's talking about consistency. He was not willing to grant consistency in the case of Do Android's Dream of Electric Sheep because he could construct no single explanation that would resolve the inconsistencies in the treatment of the androids. But with Ubik, he was fir- he's able to first construct an explanation he, f- he found satisfactory. So Lem argues that it was consistent, right? And then to bypass the matter that he's just bypassing explanations altogether. Like Stephen said, it doesn't matter if you get it or not. We're going. Story's going. So Lem's saying that, and then Constantly Robinson says, "We're not only we're not only forced, but we ought to, at a certain point, leave off defending its science fictional nature, the impossibility of imposing consistency on a text, to seek its global meanings not in the realm of events themselves, but in that." of their constructive principle, the very thing is responsible for the lack of focus. He's basically saying, like, it's okay, <laughs> right? Yeah. yeah. I mean, if, if, if the story doesn't make sense, it's almost like um, Dick is writing realism because the world doesn't make sense either. You know, it does conform to rules that we think we understand, but we don't know why things happen. You know, it doesn't yeah, make that, sense. But there's no and, need for rules here. It's a false yeah, reality. So. Yeah. You know, yeah. you can abandon that as well. Oh, man, I broke this ball I've been playing with. Have you ever seen one of these oh, fall man. apart? Whoa. Golly. This is a huge mess. <laughs> it's in my keyboard now, too. <laughs> what is that, like rubber bands? or? Well, it's like one of those balls that are just a lot of strings that kind of meet uh, at the center. I don't, I don't okay. know what they're like, squish, squish balls or something. Squish ball? Or yeah, something? yeah, I think that's it. Yeah. Yeah. God, dickhead's history right here. Squish uh, <laughs> <laughs> ball. Is destroyed. Um, well, and and so um, we have uh, another quote from Ken Stanley Robinson, uh, and I'm sorry, but I read a lot of his book on this. The clearest example of Dick's plan of embedding inconsistency into the structure of the text: every reader of Ubik becomes engaged, just like its characters, in the struggle to create a coherent explanation for the events of the narrative. Like the characters, every reader is eventually defeated. The persistence with which the readers have attempted to succeed in creating an explanation is a tribute both to the fascination exerted by this particular sequence of events and to the strength of the generic expectations we bring to our reading. To accept defeat in explaining Ubik is to participate in the evolution of science fiction. Hmm. Robinson. 
Or, I mean, that's just, like I was saying, that's just, that's life, too. We spend our whole lives trying to figure out the meaning, and we never do. We just have to find a station and get off and be happy with where we are, you know? Yeah, as William Hurt says in The Big Chill, sometimes you just have to let art flow over you. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, how All right, um, and I do have a quote from Tessa. Uh, many readers have puzzled over the ending of Ubik. When Glenn Rensseter finds a joke Chip coin in his pocket, what does it mean? Is Rensseter dead? Are Joe Chip and the others alive? Actually, this is meant to tell you we can't be sure of anything in the world that we call reality. It is possible that they are all dead in Cold Pack or that the half-life world can affect the full-life world. It's also possible that they are all alive and dreaming said Tessa. So sure, why not? Yeah. I, or we're all in we're all in Descartes like demons simulation, you know? <laughs> I think. Yeah. Okay, and so the last or we're all in Sartre's no exit. Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. So the last subject that I want to talk about is talk about the PKD isms. Um so we've got our precogs, we've got um the anti-size, we've got um, conaps. Um, I don't think they're peak conaps like the man who japed, but they're pretty good here um, when the conaps have stimulant and gossip settings. <laughs> like, you, you know, <laughs> like, the, uh, the papes, the homeopapes. Uh, yeah, homeop- yeah, Twitter versions of homeopapes that yeah. you can realize. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, the door a door threatens a lawsuit against Joe Chip, which is great. The very door is Adams. one of my favorite characters of this book. <laughs> the door is fucking great. It's the opposite of Douglas Adams' uh, door in a uh, oh. hiker. You know, the one that's cheery all the time. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, he, he also says ersatz. He loves saying ersatz. Ersatz. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, um, but the the greatest. Um, PKD invention of this book, the self-destructive humanoid bomb. Um, yeah, that's pretty cool. Yeah. And, well, and also, also like the amphetamines in the vending machine. That's kind of nice, you know? I know. I dream of that world. I know. I know. <laughs> that would be very convenient for my lifestyle. So, yes. <laughs> yeah, you need a little pick-me-up, you just go to the vending machine. Mm-hmm. Yes. And they also have them for hallucinogens. I know. Come yeah. on, man. Now you're just teasing me. <laughs> My favorite thing, though, about the self-destructive humanoid bomb is it's kind of mentioned, like, of course it is. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But, but he yeah. plays it so straight. That's what makes it, for me, if you if the author plays it straight, I believe it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So was there any other PKD-isms I, that we've missed? Um, I think we got them all, but... I don't... Were there any artifacts in this? Any artificial yes. organs? Uh, yes. yes. Right at the beginning. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I kept thinking Joe Chip should um, put a string on his nickel to get out the door and just get his nickel back every time. <laughs> Maybe that wasn't known until video games where you did it with a quarter. Maybe that wasn't a thing yet. Yeah, maybe not. Yeah. Uh, I hadn't thought of that, but uh, all right. Hell, I'd be doing that with all my conapt machines. I uh, know. I want to do it with my mortgage payment. (laughs) (laughs) All right. um, 
I don't have anything else on themes. Is there any like running themes in the book that I missed that you guys want to talk about before we get into? I like I, I like that what gets them to Luna and um in strands them all in Half Life or some of them in Half Life eventually is greed. It's Renter's greed basically. I like the cautionary tale aspect of that. You know. Do you think it's greed or is it desperation? I feel like it's more desperation. Oh, uh, it could the, be. Yeah. The company is kind of going under and you yeah, know, it kind of is on the verge of actual death and. Yeah. Well, you know, I think the reason I landed on greed was that he's initially trying to sell that um receptionist woman on like forty two or forty one. Yeah, right. You know, in her souls. Yeah, no, there, like, there is he, definitely that element. Yeah. 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 Well, he's like a car salesman trying to trying to sell you on undercoating, you know? Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> well, and the whole never thing, buy the undercoating. <laughs> it, it's funny because we know from all the research that we've done on Phil's life and what he was doing is that he would have mm-hmm. times where he owed so much in parking tickets that he like had his license suspended. <laughs> and he was going through all those things, and so the so Joe Chip not having the money to get outside is is very PKD and yeah. and it also gives him a motivation to like, I got to get this like out of date business going. Yeah, mm-hmm. I know we got, we got rid of you all know, the psychics on earth, but like Joe chip, mm-hmm. Joe chip is a sad sack, but I think he's a way more entertaining sad sack than most of the other ones we've seen in PKD yeah. books. So yeah. far, he's just more interesting. I agree. I agree. Even though he's, you know, I kept, he still has the the thing near the end where he says, you know, failure is an option. I might as well give up, as yeah. happens with most of these guys. But yeah. he just seems more more into fixing his problems rather than than just accepting them. Well, and think about this: we've gotten this far into the discussion, and we haven't talked about Divorcepedia. We haven't like consulted, you know, like where he was. Um, Larry, do you have the timeline up so we can see? I do. Where he was in 1966 when he wrote it. 1966, he was he married Nancy Hackett. Okay, so he was early, like he was he was happy. He was happy, Phil. Honeymoon time. Yeah, he was happy, Phil, early in the marriage. Okay, so. But he, but I mean, Pat does abduct him into a marriage in this story, you know, <laughs> like, like just like <laughs> yeah, right. Which is. <laughs> and then she keeps the ring. I, I like. Yeah, yeah. It's kind of correct. Isn't it? Yeah, I agree. It's <laughs> weird. You know, talking about um, possible inconsistencies in the story, like the narrative or the dramatic line, they make sense to me. But the only thing in this whole thing that doesn't make sense to me is Pat's powers. Not because I'm not because of the going back to a branching node and changing that, but because she remembers. You know, it seems like the human mind has got to have some finite storage capacity such that if she has been doing this every day to like get her hamburger without mayonnaise, like she has got so many parallel universes in her head. I don't see how she gets through the moment, you know? That's true. Yeah. I mean, that's a, well, maybe she just forgets probably like everybody else, but yeah. How do you keep track? How do you keep track yeah. of what reality you're actually in? Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah, like watching totally Eureka. Did you watch Eureka? Eureka has that problem. Yeah. Right? Yeah. <laughs> That's a great show. I love that. It is. I love Eureka. Yeah. All right. So let's talk about the reaction that the world had to Ubik, which was obviously this is considered one of his most important works. It it was chosen by Lev, um, I believe it was Lev Grossman. Grossman? Yeah, Yeah. chose it for for 100. 
Clive Grossman chose this for one of the hundred greatest English language novels, which is on the cover of the Mariner edition. It is a big deal, and it is probably one of the reasons. But a lot of times, you ask somebody what their favorite. Well, well, who is who is Lev Grossman? He wrote the Magicians. Yeah. If you know the Magicians, that trilogy. Yeah. Well, so what is his hundred best list to us? Is it for Time? To people. No, Time Magazine did a hundred greatest. Yeah. English oh. language novels, and they, they, whatever reason they chose um, these novels, and they'd have one person write about why this novel was so great. And, and okay, so so it, Time Magazine chose the novels, and he wrote about the yeah. novels they chose. Probably, yeah. From the stuff of space opera, Dick spins a deeply unsettling existential horror story, a nightmare you'll never be sure you've woken up from. Bum bum bum. Okay, that's, it. that's the quote. Yep. And um, that's, I think, one of the... But I think the thing about Ubik is, is that if you ask most, like, weird fiction fans what their favorite PKD book is, a majority of the time, it's Ubik. Um, yeah. yeah. A majority of the time? A lot of the time, yeah. it's Ubik, yeah. I weird. often give Ubik as my favorite, yeah. I think, I think one reason Ubik has such long legs is that um, it's a book people will sit around and get stoned and argue about, you know, no, it means this, it means that. I think books that have that kind of discussion starter aspect tend to last and last and last. Yeah. Books that are, that are open to interpretation like this. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's one that, especially since I spent time going through and highlighting and looking for quotes and all that, like the more I looked at it, the more impressed I was with it. I thought it was a Mm five-star book when I finished reading it, but like the more I went through it, I just, you know, I I just found such appreciation for it. Okay. So, um, well, I want to bring in one more comparison uh, and that's to alas, all thinking. I really feel like the, the, the shriveled bodies of, of the dead people, he, he almost pulled that image directly from Alas All Thinking. And like for, they, anyone, for anyone that doesn't know what, he's, what Larry's talking about is, and we did a special episode a couple of years ago on, um, there's a short story called Alas All Thinking by Harry Bates, who uh, wrote the story that became The Day the Earth Stood Still. And he was an editor, um, uh, an editor mostly, but he wrote science fiction in the 30s, and he wrote a science fiction story in the 30s called Alas All Thinking, which PKD once referred to as the perfect science fiction story from his childhood. And so we did a whole... reason he started writing at all. ...was this story. And so we did a whole episode based on the short story, and it's really crazy for a story written in the 30s. Uh, yeah. but, but good callback, Larry, because um, I hadn't thought about that, but you're right. It This, this does... Um, Avi is very influenced by that story. Ah, good. Wow, good job. I it, the the visual the visual also feels like it's from the ring or Ringu, either one. I yeah, guess right. the dead kids in the closet, you know. Right, right. Yeah. yeah, and I think the the level to which Ubik has influenced other work is is definitely. I I couldn't even begin to 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 map that. I I wouldn't even know where. Right, but. Oh. Well, obviously, I'm going to give this five out of five cold pack um, uh, canisters. Uh, this is, I think, a masterpiece. I think it's one of Dick's best books. Like, I don't see how anyone could argue with that. It's 
Um, it's definitely, I probably his second best book of the sixties. And I would put it right behind three stigmata of Palmer, Palmer Eldridge, which is still my favorite at this point, my favorite PKD book. Uh, Anthony. Uh, I'll give it four out of five back talking apartment doors. Um, (laughs) I, I think, and, and I only knocked it down a star because I think he's done this ver- this type of story. I think he did it better in Eye in the Sky with kind of the converging alternate realities. Um, but this was a first read for me, and I thought it was an amazing experience. I think the opening commercial, the opening the chapters with all the different Ubik commercials, really helps make Ubik its own character within the story rather than just being a thing they talk about. So four out of five for me. Hmm. And you you think it's you think Eye in the Sky did this better? Okay, that's interesting. Well, I think it did certain aspects of kind of the being in a different reality because there's more realities in it. I can see I can see it being mm-hmm. more yeah, dynamic. He he sense. spends more time focusing on a lot of the characters who are experiencing that weird stasis when the death ray collapses. Yeah, and in this, he's mostly focused on like Joe Chip and what's going on with Rutsiter. I think Eye in the Sky still suffers from the editorial fuckery. Um, Larry, what's your final judgment? Uh, I think I think I'd have to give it. I think four and a half. Uh, yeah, four and a half. Uh, what do we What do we got left? Uh, quarters with Runcitter's face on it. Four and a half quarters with Runcitter's face on it. Okay. Yeah. So, but uh, you know, it's it's not perfect. But it's really damn close to being perfect for a PKD book. I mean, there's not there's not a lot of flaws you can point out here that that drag it down, you know. Other than uh, uh, maybe some of the characters weren't utilized enough. Maybe their uh, our villains weren't weren't uh, explored enough. weren't weren't clear enough characters. Uh, but other than that, the story stands. It's interesting. It, it never felt like it dragged for me, not once. And I, I thought it was a great story. All right, Stephen, final judgment. I give it all the stars I've got, however many that is. Um, <laughs> to me, it's up in the PKD pantheon, or my personal pantheon anyways, in my personal cosmos. That being Maze of Death, Galactic Pot Healer, Valus, and Alphane, Clans of the Alphane Moon. Those are probably my favorites of PKD. Right. You know, this is right up there right alongside them right i don't know if it's you know i think i might have told you last time david that ubik is my favorite pkd and i I do still like it a lot but also i love those other ones too and i just i'll never stop reading valis either you know i think there might come a day where i stop reading ubik but i don't think i'll ever stop reading valis all right so all the stars you can give it um awesome uh yeah i'd probably give more stars if i could too um, but uh, excuse me, I give it more cold pack storage unit. <laughs> um, uh, so potential movie treatment. Um, so the the film rights to this have bounced around a lot. Um, in 1974, he sold an option to a French filmmaker, uh, Jean Pierre, um, and it's Gorier, G O R N. Gorin, um, and he actually uh, hired Dick to write the screenplay. And now, some of you might be wondering why we're not covering the Ubik screenplay 
I thought about it. I looked into it. Um, but because it was published on its own, we're going to do an episode on the Ubix screenplay on its own because it's a self. Are? Yes. Okay. Yes. Yes. Anthony and I talked about it. It's a self-contained published book um, as the screenplay, so I want to cover it separately. Um, is is that a, is that as Dick wrote it, or is it? Because I understand there's a lot of notes and or a lot of like additions in there too, right? Like interpolations. Uh, I've never read it. I don't know. I don't know. I, I don't. I haven't uh, looked at it yet. Yeah. Right. I was this close to reading it, and then for this episode, and then decided to keep it separate. Um, so, uh, in a July 2006 interview, Tommy Pilato, who um, was one of the producers of the Scanner Darkly, said that um, they still had they had the option for Ubik, um, and that he wanted to make a live action feature of it. And that's key that he was saying that because at the time they had just done the animated or partially animated Scanner Darkly, um, and I know when um, Issa. Uh, PKD's daughter, who runs Electric Sheep Productions, has said, she said before, she has four priorities. At the time, at one point she said she had four priorities, Man in the High Castle, done, now. Uh, three Stigmata, Ubik, and I can't remember what the other one was. I, I'm brain farting it, but the Ubik was one of her priorities, was to one day get a movie of Ubik. Uh, Michael Gondry came really close to doing one. Yeah. Huh? Michelle Gondry. Michelle Gondry uh, um, came really close to doing a, a adaptation in early 2011. Oh, that would be amazing. Yeah. Um, in 2014, he did have a quote. So uh, at the moment, I don't feel up to doing it. That's French, right? It doesn't have the dramatic structure that would make it a good film. I received a script that disheartened me a bit, and that was it. It was a dream, but in life, you can't always have what you want. It seems like he's kind of over it looks like he's over it yeah and that was as close as we got because um they did hire somebody to write the script and they were you know and that was the same producing team that did scanner darkly they hired michelle gondry to do that hmm. and electric productions was involved and then that's it for now would we do it as a movie like do we have any thoughts on that uh, um and who would you hire to direct it um if if hollywood gave you all the money, and said, make a Ubik movie, Larry. So I thought the, the first thing, I I would start in Joe's uh, Conapt, in his apartment, because I think that's a hilarious scene. I, I think the other stuff is important and has to be there. It happens prior to that, but it can be put in after that scene. That's our opening scene, is him meeting... Pat and that whole whole thing with the door, his his life. You know, we we get a lot of character, we get a lot, a lot of uh, world building there, and then we we he finds out about the the missing people, and we have to integrate that more into the story. But other than that, you know, I think a maybe a Wizard of Oz style. Uh, color shift or something like that to to represent we're in a new world would be nice. Something visual to represent we're in a new world. And uh, I like the idea of Michel Gondry directing. Yeah, he has such a great visual style to begin with, and I wouldn't I wouldn't mess with his 
mathematical mind and his just he would do brilliant things um maybe if he got the right script uh, maybe. What... <laughs> um so anthony who would you uh how would you do the movie and who would you have do it Oh, man. I almost wonder, like we did for Three Stigmata, if this would benefit from being actually a a TV series where we can spend a little more time building up the characters that are in Cold Pack with Jory and Ella. We can meet the rest of the team that's going through all this stuff with Joe Chip and kind of move forward and maybe explore these different worlds as as we go along. Uh, But I actually thought long and hard about this, and I... You guys might disagree, but I wouldn't mind it if Taika Waititi directed it because I think that he'd really nail a lot of the humor that I think gets lost in dick translations. And again, I'm going to say this again for like the 500th time. What we know is dick adaptations really just turn out to be more inspired by Blade Runner than his actual books. Yeah. And and you'd want this one, and I agree, it would have to be inspired actually by the books and the tone and the humor and the make it funny. Yeah. Um, yeah. If you do a limited series, you could then you could basically make the, the PKD novel we never got with the mm-hmm. <laughs> doing the Psy anti-talent storyline and really like build that out. But I, 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 like the, I, I like the idea of focusing an each episode on a different member of the team and sort of a through line of, of are they dead or are they alive? And sort of just hinting at at what's going on there. Mm-hmm. Uh, that would yep. be something really cool to see. Yeah, and Taika Waititi, I could I, I could see, you know. Yeah, he's not all about laughs. I mean, Jojo Rabbit is funny, but it's also fucking dark as shit. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and he's uh, I know he's uh, yeah. I'm not going to disagree with you too much, Anthony. I think doing like a limited series, like a six episoder where you could build out that first story would be cool, but I would I'd push it to eight or 10 episodes at the most. Yeah. I would keep it a movie myself. Cause I think you got a structure for it, but um, it could be a long one, but uh, since I'll, I'll go somebody different, I don't have to, I could agree with you guys, but I, I I'm going to say, um, uh, what's you the... say Christopher Nolan? No. <laughs> John Pierre Jonay. Okay. Yeah, Jean-Pierre Jonet. Yep. My wife is excited by that idea. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I think he would bring uh, a, a, the weirdness and the just insanity to the, once you got into the Half-Life world, and I agree with Larry to do it, like differentiate it, make it seem very realistic until you get into the Half-Life and then make it progressively weirder as time regresses. That's yeah. how I would do it. Uh, Steven, you have any thoughts on uh, movie or who? You know, what my initial thought was actually Christopher Nolan because of what he did with Tenet. But I, I agree. I agree with Anthony. I still haven't humor, seen it. Okay, I, I agree that um, humor is like a huge important aspect of this, and that's not really um, Nolan's forte at all. You know, he's more cerebral than comedic. Yeah. Although, um, it, you know, with um, uh, Memento, there's a lot of humor in that one. Yeah, there yeah. is. Yeah. Well, I guess that was before everybody was watching, you know? Yeah, that's true. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, you know, I think if, if I could, like, dream, if I, if I could assign this to anybody I wanted, it would probably be um, the Monty Python members from the 70s, you know? Because I think they would do wonderful if, 
if the film tears and then a big giant animated hand comes in and sprays that film and it comes back <laughs> together, you know, that would be so fun. I, I would trade all the, the um, other, the slapstick stuff. I, I would, I mean, I would trade all the things that Monty Python brings just to have those moments, those transitions, you know? Hmm. Yeah, that sounds good. Now, who would, who would direct it though? Would it be Gilliam or Joan? Probably Gilliam. Yeah, probably Gilliam, I think. Yeah. Yeah. I think Gilliam circled this one. He also circled the really? world. The world Jones made too. Well, he is on oh. the uh, on that ad in the uh, in that PKD uh, documentary. Oh, with the oh. spray can of P- yeah. PKD. Yeah. So he's right there. He's ready to do it. <laughs> so all right. Um, the next segment is Dick like suggestions. Um, uh, Langhorn, you want to give us your video game this time? <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. The, so first of all, I, I have to mention Ubik the game, even though I've never played it, and uh, I've heard varying, varying things about it. I hear it's kind of a good game, but it doesn't really uh, give you much of the Ubik experience. And uh, so it's not really a dick-like suggestion because it's too on the nose. So there's that. And then the game I actually want to talk about is called The Fall. And it was made in 2014 by Over the Moon Studios. It's a very small studio. Uh, I played it recently with the uh, developer commentary on. And those guys were, were pretty great. They talked about why each scene existed. So basically what it is, is you you fall into this world where there's trash everywhere. The place is a mess. You think you're a person inside of an, a suit of armor there to rescue people. But it turns out the human inside is dying. So the suit is actually in control of what's going on. It's a, a puzzle platformer. You, you solve the problem, you, you have this computer robot android enemy who tries to kill you all the time. He's not very cool. Through the course of the game, you gain sentience by finding ways around your programming. It's got that, that element of, you know, fear of, of androids taking over that PKD loves. Uh, it's got the what is humanity elements uh, it's very dark and also funny and um, it mocks sort of 1950s morality and and the you know the eisenhower era uh, happy family stuff mm. and it's, it's a it's a great game it's a very small studio so it's a, you're not going to get like triple a graphics or anything but it's it's worth playing and it's super cheap on steam so okay um, Steven, uh, do you have a dick-like suggestion for us this month? Um, nothing new. How about something old? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I've got a yeah, How about, y'all probably know it already, Feed. Y'all know Feed? Mm-hmm. No. M.T. Anderson? Like, Ubik reminds, like, I, I feel like Feed is built on the backbone of Ubik, and so in, in its format, anyways. Um, the chapters are all cut up with, um, these advertising assaults you know and it's really effective it's a it's a really fun novel the first line i'll read you the first line here we went to the moon to have fun but the moon turned out to completely suck and just 
<laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> it's a it's a really it's a really good novel. It's um it's YA and I don't, I mean I don't know what makes it why really I guess it has teen protagonists but I mean yeah. I guess you know why why always kind of addresses the issues that are um the focus of the target demographic but um I, I don't know I think it's I think it probably doesn't get read a lot because it's on a YA shelf but I think it should be on every shelf man it's really good Well that's that's the thing about YA is that mm. if you actually get into YA a lot of those books are really touch on yeah important issues and, and yep. really dark themes you know they're yep. it's not all about teenage unrequited love and all that stuff yeah yeah for sure it's it's not all john green you know yeah right. yeah yeah all right anthony staying on brand nothing <laughs> <laughs> all right so um i'll make up for anthony because i have a book and a movie uh of course you do of course I do. <laughs> um, I'm going to go old school with book two with a 80s science fiction novel called uh, Mockingbird by Walter Tevis. Um, Walter Tevis is back in the zeitgeist because he wrote a little novel called Queen's Gambit that um, mm. is very popular. That's where I've seen that name before. Yes, he also saw his name because he also wrote The Hustler and The Color of Money as well and The Man Who Fell to Earth. And so Mockingbird, this was my first time reading it. It's uh, it's kind of, it, it's sort of Brave New World-ish. Androids have taken over all responsibility, so humans can just, like, um, have casual sex and just be weirdos for a little while. Um, so, so at that point, um, you know, Mockingbird is uh, kind of an end-of-the-world thing. It's really good. It's great science fiction. Um and I enjoyed it quite a bit. I definitely enjoy um, Walter Tevis's writing style. I think I want to go back and read The Hustler and maybe even Queen's Gambit, but I kind of feel like I got enough of that watching the show. But I also uh, checked out some interviews with Walter Tevis, and he, um, he did a lot of um, science fiction short stories in, uh, in the same era that PKD was massively putting out a lot. And uh, and so I'm going to try and track down a collection of his short science fiction because I think that would be really good to have. And so the other dick-like suggestions, it's a um, brand new film from uh, San Diego, to, uh, San Diego pair of filmmakers, um, Moorhead and Benson, who made yes. Spring and The Endless. They have a new movie called Synchronic with Anthony Mackie. And, oh, yeah, well, yeah. Much like Endless, Synchronic, Time is a Monster, um, just in the same way. Um, and so it's very PKD because the plot of the movie is that there's this drug on the street called Synchronic, and it's a time travel drug. It's very dark, but um, there's also Anthony Mackie has a line similar to Stephen's um, dick-like suggestion where he just says the past sucks really loud. Like he yells <laughs> the past sucks. Um, and, uh, so it, it's a really good movie and I actually think it's, um, Benson and Moorhead's best film. All right. So, uh, that's our last segment. We usually do the next book now. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. You're right. I don't even know what the next book is. <laughs> um, Larry, uh, galactic pot healer. You have that one, Anthony? 
Do I? I can bring it up. I love Galactic Pot Healer, man. That's why I've never read that one. I, I think I read part of it, but I never got got to read the whole thing. Sometimes even gods need help. In Galactic Pot Healer, that god is an alien creature known as the Glimmung, which looks alternately like a flaming wheel, a teenage girl in a swirling mass of ocean life. In order to raise a sunken city, he summons beings from across the galaxy to Plowman's planet. Joe Fernwright is one of those summoned, needed for his skills at pot healing, repairing broken ceramics, but from the moment Joe arrives on Plowman's planet, things start to go awry. Galactic Pot Healer. Yeah, I definitely remember reading at least some of this book. All right, so uh, we'll see everybody. Uh, our next episode will be Galactic Pot Healer. I think we'll have other things coming out in between, but um, but uh, thank oh, yeah. you. Yeah, if you made it this far, uh, you made it further than Stephen's uh, ball did. Uh, <laughs> well, at, real quick, though, uh, Stephen, where can people find you? Yeah. Oh, Twitter works. I'm on Twitter. That's a good place to find me. And you have a book coming out? Later this, I do. My heart is a chainsaw. It's well, it's out in like eight months. It was August thirty first. So people can look. And the only good Indians just came out in paperback. It's got that pretty yellow side on it now. Nice. Ooh, I'll definitely be sending people your way to uh, to your books. Um, so, uh, dickheads, just gonna close out with uh, our usual reminder to keep it paranoid. Stay paranoid. Yeah. Good night or hey. goodbye good night. or whatever. Good night.